Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The FT. Marc Roche, London correspondent of Le Monde, has identified a new British art form. Writing home to his compatriots after Wednesday's grand funerary event for Margaret Thatcher, he attempted to explain the strange ways of the tribe he lives among by reference to l'art britannique d'organiser des obsèques. The British adore a funeral, he went on to claim. The art of organising such formal events is in the national DNA, thanks partly to what he calls insularity and a taste for theatre and so on, in a brisk canter through every hoary old national stereotype, ending with more reference to past empires, or rather the empire past, than would ever escape the pen of a British journalist. Annoying? Yes, a bit. But that's a healthy reason to read other people's newspapers. Just as you're bridling at some phrase or other, you think, well, he has a point. Even our own commentators, viz the BBC's Nick Robinson, could hardly stop listing all the things the British are apparently so good at. The choreography, music and poetry of burials are, in Robinson's view, natural to Brits. I've never noticed in myself a natural talent for making six black horses walk at 70 paces a minute while pulling a gun carriage, but after listening to Wednesday's commentary, I now know all about it. It's difficult, in case you were wondering, but it was done perfectly. And so very many other things were perfect too. Timing of arrival of Coffin at Cathedral? Impeccable. Amount of time the Queen waited? Perfectly judged. Getting a coffin up 24 steps? Oh, very difficult, but perfectly executed. Even the nods to political correctness, a female Chelsea pensioner, were handled with perfect, self-effacing ease. In the light of Roche's comments, it suddenly struck me how very self-congratulatory the whole thing was. One feels sorry for commentators who have so much time to fill that they need to tell you the difference between a bearskin and a busby, but the tone throughout, each time another strange facet of the British national pantomime was anatomised, was that it was marvellous, absolutely marvellous. Gosh, we told ourselves, we are so good at this. It was, in fact, national theatre, in the truest sense. With all theatre's power to entertain, distract and evoke emotions both introspective and communal. Careful ceremonial made Wednesday's event into one that was actually less about Margaret Thatcher than about us all, and in doing so made a potentially divisive event surprisingly consensual. No such thing as society, eh? Her legacy in the cultural world has been much discussed, of course. In the media, it's easiest to see. In taking on the print unions, in liberalising the broadcasting industry, in allowing Rupert Murdoch to flout Monopoly's legislation in acquiring the Times and the Sunday Times, and so handing his empire a power that still reverberates. Elsewhere in the arts, her influence is harder to quantify. 
Thatcher had few friends in that world, apart from the artist pairing Gilbert and George, whose vocal support for the Iron Lady was probably a contrarian gesture, like the wearing of natty suits at a time when no one else did. Did she actively dislike the arts? Probably. Or perhaps they were simply not that significant in her worldview. If the cultural world did show up on her radar, it would merely have been as yet another area of state-funded floppiness. By the way, she is routinely excoriated for cuts in art funding, but state provision was still at a level that we'd now find fabulously munificent. Of course, if Thatcher had been able then to envisage our present era, a time of multi-millionaire artists, of an art market that brings the richissimos to London like bears to a honeypot, and culture's huge contribution to the national coffers, she might well have taken more interest. But it wasn't like that then. Culture was less central when the mood in the country was more polarised, angry, confrontational, violent on those picket lines and with Irish bombs going off. Politics were not the mealy-mouthed, don't-offend-anyone consensualist business of today. And art responded, as art does. The excesses of punk, some fine political playwriting and other radical theatre, the emergence of the YBAs, a golden age of novel writing and so much else, a lot of what happened in the Thatcher era is still celebrated now. Cool Britannia, nay circa 1962, was growing up and finding its feet. But just before you think that I'm starting to argue that old line about a bit of conflict and hardship being great for art, I'm not. In looking back on the British cultural scene in the Thatcher era, we have to set the focus even wider to realise that much of the vivid creativity of that time had its roots sunk deep in a social compost laid down much earlier. The playwrights, musicians, artists and writers who emerged then were the post-war generation for whom free education, all the way through to tertiary level, right up to and including whatever apparently daft stuff the artily minded wanted to get up to, started to produce dynamic results. In the cultural world, we're still reaping those benefits. Whether or not the grammar school girl wanted to hack away at that system, regardless of how it would affect the future, she didn't. We did that later. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.